Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. We're in the fourth week of our Transform series. We are excited about how many people are really joining in with us to become skilled at personal Bible study. I want to remind you again that what we're doing on Sundays is we're inspiring, trying to give you an inspiration from Paul's letter to Timothy, where we see the importance of the Word of God being God-breathed on every page of the Bible. But also to do, we have a video of how to each week about how to study God's Word. And each day during the week, we have our transformed devotional book that helps you put into practice what you're learning. So what we're really trying to get you good at is that you learn to observe, you see what the Bible's saying, that you learn to interpret so that you actually know what the real meaning of the text is, and that you learn to apply it first to yourself, but then to apply it in such a way that you can share it with others. And so we're going to look at what has been for me, I think, most, the most convicting passage that I have I've ever preached on, probably. And so if you're here today and you're kind of one of those people, you're sort of seeking, you're trying to decide if you're going to follow God or not, today might scare the crap out of you. But there's some point in every true follower's life that Jesus says, this is what it's going to cost. And so Paul lays out for Timothy what it's going to cost to be all in for Jesus. So I'd like you to read this passage with me. It's 2 Timothy 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 13 together. I like it when you read God's Word out loud. I love to hear the church read the Word of God. So let's do that together. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... In trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. So I remind you that this is the last recorded words of the Apostle Paul. It began as a very personal letter 
to his spiritual son, Timothy. And he's writing to Timothy about how to have courage in very uncertain terms or times in his world. The violence in the Roman Empire has erupted. Everything that's bad about the Roman government is blamed on Christians. So Christians become a persecuted class of people. Nero lights Christians on fire in his garden to light up his parties. They're thrown to the lions. They're, they're made to fought gladiators. But that's not the only group that's beginning to be persecuted. The second group, uh, a rebellion or revolt, arises in Palestine or in the Holy Land. They begin to rebel against the Roman government. And so the the Roman uh, government sends their strongest general, their mightiest army. They destroy the rebellion. They destroy Jerusalem. They take down and take apart the temple, which has never been rebuilt since. And they disperse the Jewish people from their land into all the areas of the Roman Empire. In the midst of this, all of this circumstances and volatility... Paul is calling Timothy to be courageous. He's calling him to certainty in the midst of uncertainty. And so you have to realize that he's asking him to be bigger than he believes himself to be. He's asking him to be greater than even his personality and wiring is. I mean, Timothy is obviously an introvert. He has stomach issues, so stress bothers him. Possibly has an ulcer. He has all kinds of uh, aspects that, that lead him to be timid tea. Sorry. <laughs> I actually said that well, so I'm not sorry. So there's everything about him naturally is going in a different direction than Paul is asking of him. And so Paul is saying, there are things that make you certain even when everything else around you is uncertain. See, this letter didn't stay a personal letter. It didn't stay a letter between a mentor and his disciple. It became a letter that was Paul's heart and Paul's teaching to every follower who is a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. And so this became a letter that was circulated to the churches. It was circulated throughout the region and it became a letter that becomes a letter to you about your life and about your life in uncertain times. As a matter of fact, the word that he spoke to Timothy is a word you need to hear today. How do you guard your heart except to guard your heart with the truth? See, the issue for so many of us is that we don't recognize that there are so many areas where we do not guard our hearts with the truth but rather we have allowed lies to be in the guarded place of our heart. You will know that you have believed a lie when your feelings and your emotions are betraying you. For example, if you're angry all the time, there's a lie that's producing that anger. If you're worried all the time, there's a lie that's producing that anger. Oftentimes... Christians have been taught to not believe their feelings or to not trust their feelings. The truth is, 
Your feelings are the greatest diagnostic tool that you have for experiencing or, or manifesting and even evaluating what your true beliefs are. You see, if you say, I believe God, but you worry, your worry is saying you don't really believe God. If you're saying, you know, I, I have utter confidence in, in my Redeemer, but you're so angry and filled with rage, you're actually saying you have no confidence in Him. Your power source is your anger. And really, you're being fueled by fear. And so what we've got to do is start to realize you don't change your feelings by changing your feelings. You change your feelings by changing your beliefs. If what you believe is true, then what you feel will be real. But if what you believe is a lie, then what you feel will not be right. And so always you can look, if you're willing to do so, you can look at what you're feeling and you can know what you're depending on and what you're relying on. And so Paul is saying, if the truth is there, it will guard your heart. And if the truth is there, it will make certain, even in uncertain times, that you have confidence, that you can overcome insecurities, that you can overcome your fear. Now look, Paul gives us, are you tracking with me in this? See, even I could tell you that every behavior also demonstrates every belief you have. Whatever you do is revealing what you believe. And so the, the battle always begins not at the feelings level. The battle doesn't begin even at the behavior level. The battle begins at the belief level. I have people all the time say to me, oh, you know, you're a pastor, you're a Christian. I really, I really respect people of faith, but I can't be a person of faith. And I look at them and think, are you crazy? Everybody's a person of faith. We all behave on what we believe. We all, we all feel out of what we believe. The thing that you're really saying is you can't believe in the truth. You can't believe in Jesus. Jesus didn't say, I have truth or I speak truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. You see, that the issue, if you're really going to be if you're going to be centered and you're going to be secure in un insecure times, is you have to have a truth that transcends this generation. You have to have a truth that transcends the opinions of men. You have to have a truth that will stand the test of time. Jesus said, I am the truth. And that really means I have been the truth, I am the truth, and I will be the truth. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that when your beliefs are centered around Jesus, then you have guarded your heart with the truth, and your behavior will manifest it. Your, your beliefs will manifest in feelings and all kind of things, so that what you're revealing is the source of your life is a truth that does not change from generation to generation. See, many of us, the problem is the source, the source of our life or the source of our joy is based on things that change instead of based on the unchanging character and nature of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, there will always be uncertainties, but you can live through those because what you have is certain. Look, 
<laughs> I was sick this week. I had the flu. Thank you to whoever gave that to me. <laughs> Somebody kissed me with an unholy kiss, I think. <laughs> so when, you ha when, you have to, when you're at home trying to, you know, I read a lot. I watch the news. I watch all this. You know, our world is going to hell, and I didn't realize it. <laughs> Good grief, even baseball people cheat. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I was so depressed by the end of the first day of internet news and TV news and every other thing. I, we're all going to die of coronavirus. I mean, you watch, you watch what news wants you to see or what people want you to see, and you cannot, you won't even survive, much less thrive. Because if you take them as truth, you have no basis for security ever. And you know what is really clear as you listen carefully to people? They believe you're an accident. They believe you're a random collocation of atoms that makes no difference whatsoever. That your sufferings are random. That your sacrifices are meaningless. It's an incredible thing if you're getting your truth from the world. You will have no security in their insecurity. But the Apostle Paul, living in a jail cell, in a dungeon-like existence, with nothing but a little opening for light, it was dark, it was damp, was subject to the weather, he was saying, in that place, guard your heart with the truth. And the only truth there is, friends, is the Word of God. That is the only truth that will guard your heart. There is no other. For there is no one else who loves your heart like Jesus loves your heart. And so Paul says, are you tracking with me on this? So Paul says there's four things that will guard you that will give you certainty in the midst of uncertainty. And I like to call them exhortations. They're not commandments so much as they are, this is what you need. And not doing this will hurt you. This is important. It's an encouragement, but it's also, it's, it's at the point of saying, this is a must in the life of every believer. The first one is this. You can't guard something if there's no strength to guard it. So he says to Timothy, remember Timothy, this timid fellow, he says, be strong. All right, so if you just hear that, you might think, okay, I've got to make myself strong. But that's not what he says. He says, be strong in the grace that, that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying, there is no strength to guard your heart in any Thing that is native to you or inherent in you. That the only time that you really begin to overcome is when you realize how weak you are. Yes. See, the great thing about grace is there's only certain requirements to receive grace. One is you have to need it. Which means you have to recognize you can't earn it, you can't deserve it, but you've got to have it. And the second is, you've got not only to need it, but hunger for it. Yes. I, I have found that anybody that is hungry for grace 
gets fed grace. Anybody that's thirsty for grace gets satisfied in their thirst for grace. But it's only when you hunger for it, you thirst for it, because you know that you need it. You see the humility that it takes to say, God, I can't even guard my own heart. God, I, my natural ways of strength are destructive. Have you ever thought about how you relate to uncertainty? You ever kind of explored that? Whenever I'm doing premarital counseling, I always explore with a couple, how do each person in this, this marriage, how do they look at uncertainty or ambiguity? Because most of the real conflicts in communication happen because we have different values about ambiguity. So the marriage I know best is the one I live in. So I found out that my wife can handle ambiguity for a long period of time if it helps her to avoid conflict with me. So she will keep stuff in and stuff it and suppress it and be getting more and more angry with me and more and more upset with me until I'll do one little stupid thing and she'll blow up at me. And I'll think she's a crazy woman. But really, she's stuffed it for six months or more and has gotten angrier and angrier. And when she lets it all out, it is unbelievable how much anger and upsetness she has because she's been living with uncertainty in our relationship. Now, here's the thing. I can't handle uncertainty in relationships. So the minute I feel like there's something wrong, I say, let's open it up. Let's bring it out. Let's be honest about it. I mean, when, when I get like this, I chase her all over the house. <laughs> she goes into the bedroom. She locks the door. I hit a key up above the door. <laughs> so here's her natural strength, you understand? To hold things in, to, to keep them restrained, to not blow up at me, all of this stuff. And here's my natural strength. Let's get it out in the open. You know, and, and what I was doing, friends, in my strength was destroying my wife. Because I was demanding that she do it my way. I was demanding that you're being dishonest. I'm being honest. What a crock. We are so full of it, friends. And because and, we think our way is the only way. Do you know what the Bible says about, particularly about being a husband? Love your wives as Christ loves the church. It never says be right, <laughs> never says win the argument, make sure she feels small because you're so smart. Never says that, but it just says be humble, treat another as more important than yourself. You know, in all of my strength, what I thought I was strength, doing strength, I was actually sinning against my wife. Do you understand? If you don't begin to understand how you deal with uncertainty, you will have trouble for the rest of your life because you'll be unaware of how dangerous you are even when you think you're being strong. There is no other strength in which to live in this uncertain world except for you to recognize you are weak. You are unable to navigate this world in your own strength. And yet, here Paul is saying to Timothy, there's a reservoir, there's a warehouse of grace 
that's just waiting for you to begin to appropriate it, begin to access it. You see, if you don't give Jesus access, you're still giving somebody access. If you're not giving Jesus access, you're not Switzerland. You're not neutral territory. You're either one kingdom's access or another kingdom's access. You're either living in the grace of God or you're living in the bondage of Satan. There's no neutral ground. And so once you realize that you're hungry, you're thirsty, that you're needy, then by faith you begin to appropriate that grace. That means you stay in tough situations. That means you don't run away just because it gets hard. That means that's that moment where you go, I might be frustrated right now or I might feel weak right now, but I know where the upgrade comes from. I know that this is going to be Mike 2.0, you know, because he's going to download to me in this situation everything that I need. In other words, let me track him with me on this. You see, the strength that he's talking about is a dependent reliance. It's a it's it's beginning to understand that God is calling you not just to be passive, nor is he calling you to be active apart from him. He's asking for a dependent responsiveness to begin to work by grace instead of, you know, being passive because you have grace or working without grace. God is asking you to take everything you are and believe Him for everything He is to accomplish everything He's called you to. This is one of the ways that I like that a writer put it. He said, whether we're worshiping, serving people that are hard to serve, or attempting a challenging ministry, we must serve with every possible resource at our disposal engaged, and at the same time in humble, dependent reliance upon God. You see, there are some people who are passively saying, I'm going to rely on God, but they don't do anything. And there are some people who are doing everything, but have no idea how to depend on God. Uh, Augustine kind of put it this way. Uh, I like his prayer here. He said, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. The idea is, is if the Lord is asking you to do something, the Lord already has provision for you to do it. He will never ask you to do what He won't equip you to do. And even if the equipping takes you beyond your personality, even if it takes you beyond your past experience, if He's asking, He's going to provide. Wherever He gives vision, He gives provision. <laughs> That's one of the ways you know you got off track. When there's not provision for your vision, it's not God's vision. When there's not provision for your vision, it's not God's vision. And we can make that mistake. We can think this is God and get out on a limb and go, uh-oh, the limb is sawing off on me. <laughs> and then you blame God, but the person who wasn't listening was you. Because often what happens is we can do good things or things we think are good, but we haven't heard from the one who commands us. And he is not... He is not bound to something He has not promised. But He does bind Himself to what He promises. You see, it's, it's such a beautiful thing when you start really depending and responding. Because His view of you is far better than your view of you. His call on your life is bigger than you are right now. It's a call to who you will be in the future. 
not to who you are now or who you were in your past. And this is why if you're the weakest person in this room, if you'll appropriate today that you have access to the grace that is in Christ Jesus, you will never be weak in that way again. Well, I would like you to, I'd like you to kind of get this in your mind with me. So I like this phrase, what God requires, He supplies. Will you say it with me? What God requires, He supplies. Say it one more time. What God requires... He supplies. So that's why you have to hear His voice. That's why you need to know His Word. Because His Word will always give you the boundaries of what He requires. And His voice will tell you exactly what He's assigning to you. And anything He's assigning to you, He will supply for you. Now, in this, are you tracking with me on this? In the second one, Paul says something so interesting. Here's Paul Locked up in prison. He, can't, he has nowhere to go preach. He can't go be a missionary. He's stuck in one place. He's limited in his parchment. He's limited in his ink. His eyes are going bad. All kinds of stuff. And yet, do you know what he says to Timothy? He says, you got to get this word out. This word, this truth that I've entrusted to you. Now you go find other faithful people. People with hearts that are tender, people that are moving in the same way you're moving. You go find them and you entrust this to them and then you tell them to entrust it to more people. Do you understand what he's saying? He's not saying, Timothy, you have to be persuasive. He's saying, Timothy, you just got to get the word out. The word has its own power. You see, Paul is living in his last days what he said in Romans 1. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew and to the Gentile. See, a lot of us, we think, well, we're all alone in this. Paul is saying something here. If you'll just let your story out, other people are waiting to hear it. The power to persuade them is not your responsibility. It's the word itself that will Persuade because Jesus will make his appeal through his word. Look, some of the toughest regions are getting transformed by the word of God. We've seen some interesting things even here. Do you remember when the Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie about Jesus' crucifixion came out? There was such a stir. Do you know what? We started getting phone calls from ultra-Orthodox Jewish people. We started getting phone calls from Orthodox practitioners uh, who would say, could you tell me who this Jesus is? We had people that called and said, I'm dreaming of Jesus at night who were, who were ultra-Orthodox Jewish people. Jesus, Jesus. So they wouldn't meet with me because that would have been horrible, they said. <laughs> but they would meet with a secretary. So we often had some of our administrative staff giving the gospel to full-out Hasidim people in our backyard because they didn't want to be seen because they were not able to escape the power of the testimony of Jesus. When I was in, when I was in Jordan, I heard numerous testimonies of Iraqis who were getting dreams of Jesus 
crossing over the border from Iraq into Jordan to find anybody who knew Jesus was, gave their lives to Jesus, went back and started churches in Iraq. You're not going to hear about all that Jesus is doing through his word on CNN or the New York Times, but I'm telling you, he's moving in a way, even among some of the hardest and most shielded religious people in this world. All we have to do is to start saying, I want to be faithful with this truth. Look, there's a piece of this that makes so much sense just to the human condition. Have you not noticed that anything you love is not complete till you tell somebody about it? I mean, how many of you, when you go to a good restaurant, just keep it to yourself? You start telling everybody, you got to go try this food. It's awesome. It's amazing. You'll, you'll, you, you know, it's, it's worth dying for, sometimes people will say. Or, uh, you went, I mean, all you have to do is be excited about a sports team, and you can talk for days about statistics and all kinds of stuff about the sports team because the experience isn't complete till you share it. Well, if, if those things, which are nothing but temporal things, can get you that excited that you want to share them, why wouldn't that, which is eternally valuable, be something that you want every friend, every family, every person that you know? You see, what Paul is saying here is this isn't a life you live solo. It's a community life. You understand what he's saying? He's saying you share, you'll find faithful people. They'll find faithful people. You won't have to go at this alone. This isn't lone wolf religion. This is community. This is body life. This is family. Why why is he calling them faithful people? Because they want to be people you can trust. They want to be people you can share this life with who have your back. See, God is not calling you normally to be alone. Now, He may sometimes separate you out so that you'll follow Him and not follow others. But normally, the desire of God is that you have a community in which you're sharing this life. And Paul, even though he's all by himself, is saying to Timothy, Timothy, don't go at this alone. Well, now it gets tough. Those first two were pretty good. This one gets tough. Paul basically says to Timothy this. You can't have the certainty if you won't take the suffering. And he says, take your share of suffering. See, one of the issues for many of us is not that we suffer, but that we're so surprised that we suffer. (laughs) The surprise is what weakens us because if you know what something's going to cost, you, you, you count that cost before you have to pay it. But if you've never counted it, then it's such a shock to you that you're so weakened when it happens that you fall into what is the worst emotional condition, which is self-pity. Self-pity is the most weakening of emotional things. It does nothing for you. Even when you throw a pity party, nobody comes, you know? And, and all you are left to is your own kind of, woe is me. I felt that all week with the flu. I just kept going, woe is me. <laughs> this is horrible. No one brought me bonbons or anything, you know? Just kidding. I don't want bonbons. Just sounded funny to me. 
So Paul is saying something that has been borne out for 2,000 years. That there is a, a price in every generation to be paid for the success of the gospel in that generation and in the generations to come. One of the great leaders of the American missionary movement was a man by the name of Adoniram Judson. He was a Baptist missionary who was sent to Burma. And, and he wrote this, and I think this is exactly what Paul is talking about here. He said, if you succeed without suffering, it's because someone else has suffered in order that you might succeed. If you suffer without succeeding, it is in order that someone behind you might succeed without suffering. Do you understand how important it is that you embrace what Paul is saying here? This isn't just for missionaries. It's not just for pastors. It's for every true follower of Jesus Christ. That God has often placed you in desert regions or difficult places. And when He does so, He has done so not to waste your sorrows, but to use your sorrows for the next generation. For those who will succeed because you suffered. Look, this has happened in our life over and over again. I, I spent 15 years in Atlanta not seeing any success. Doing all the things I knew to do. We prayer walked. We, we, we wept tears. We had whole nights of prayer. We had 40 days of prayer. We had, we had all these things that we tried to do and not a single one of them was working in Atlanta. 15 years of that. Trying to revitalize dead churches. Trying to go into areas of Atlanta that were multicultural and trying to raise multicultural churches. Trying to reach different ethnicities and age groups and socioeconomics. Never seeing anything get up and going. Then the Lord released us from Atlanta. The day we came to New City, it was as if, as if everything we prayed in Atlanta was being answered in New City. He does not waste your sorrows. But, you see, because I had 15 years of my share when I came here, everybody told me, it's, it's funny, my first 10 days here, there was not a positive thing said. I walked down for my first sermon, the lady came up to me and said, I like your accent, but you're too nice, you won't last one year. I have never been nice, friends, I'll just let you know. She didn't last a year, I've been here 16. Every pastor I talked to said nothing will happen. No spiritual movement will happen. No conversions will take place. That is what I heard in the first 10 days that I was here. One pastor said to me, you know why they call it rock land. <laughs> and it was such an interesting thing that these folks had given up and had believed that there would be no success because they in some ways were unwilling to suffer you see rent a pastors cannot care for the sheep you have to be willing to die for the sheep 
Because otherwise the wolves will run you away. And it isn't as if it isn't called Rockland. It is a rocky place. I, I noticed something when I first came here. There were walls of rocks everywhere. And I said, okay, that shows it's a rocky soil, but it also shows that there were farmers who were willing to take the rocks out so that there could be ground on which the plants and the harvest could come. So instead of seeing it as a barrier, I said, we're building on an old foundation. I mean, you're tracking with, I, mean, I, I felt very vulnerable sharing that with you. Because, because the enemy wants us to believe that the suffering will not count. But here's, here's one way to look at it. In a world that's falling apart, Christians must commit themselves without reserve to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. What the apostle is saying, surrender your options. You know, if you have option B, you're going to take option B when it gets tough. So he says, surrender your options. Give up any other objective. Burn your bridges. Resolutely follow your Lord. Admit no alternatives. Set yourselves to live a Christian lifestyle wherever you are, whatever you're doing, and refuse all others. We're going to look at what he means by this as he unpacks three metaphors, but I need you to know this. There is no separation between secular and sacred when you're a Christian. Everything you do is sacred because everything you do is with the Holy Spirit in you. The very breath of God is breathing within you. And as you move either, either as a teacher or a sweet, uh, street sweeper or you're a baker or you're a chef or you're a doctor or you're a lawyer or you teach, whatever it is, it is sacred. It is not just when you preach. It's not just when you are a missionary. You're always a missionary. You're always on mission. And, and some people have mistakenly, when they get excited about giving their all to Jesus, have left what he wired them to do to do what they aren't made to do. Stupid story. But there was a farmer who saw clouds in the form of GP. And he had discerned, go preach. So he went, he got trained, he went and preached his first sermon. He was coming down, a lady came up to him and said, Pastor, I think that was go plow. <laughs> Look, some of us, we have the wrong idea. You can be an apostle in law. You can be an apostle in education. You can be an apostle in restaurant service. You can be an apostle in whatever you're doing. Luther used to say, the milkmaid is doing God's work because God promised that we would have food and she's bringing the food. The street sweeper is doing God's work because God is the God who brings order out of chaos and the street sweeper is taking the chaos out of the streets. You have to begin to realize that whatever it is that you're called to do, you are called to do it as all three of these things that Paul says. He says it takes the dedication of a soldier, the discipline of an athlete, and the diligence of a farmer. So the soldier, Paul says, the soldier suffers for his mission. 
One of the, one of the true things of a true soldier is there's a single-mindedness, Paul says. You know why that's so important? It's because the double-minded are unstable in all their ways. When you have in your mind both God is good and God may not be good, when life gives you uncertainty, you'll go to the negative. Therefore, you can expect nothing from God because if God gives you wisdom, you have to have the single-mindedness to receive it and to act upon it. I like this quote from Graham Cook. He says, a warrior doesn't look for relief. A warrior looks to finish the assignment. Paul says it this way, a soldier does not get entangled with civilian pursuits, but his aim is to satisfy the one who enlisted him. See, the goal here, the objective here, is that your life in every way, you're sitting there thinking, will this please my commander? Will this please my captain? And when that's true, you see, it's so different from the person who lives in fear. If you've ever been around people you could never please, but you're trying to please them, then you're always trying to think of how to avoid the conflict, or you're trying to avoid their anger, their, their violence, or whatever it is. That's not pleasing them, that's appeasing them. The only time you truly find yourself totally given to pleasing someone is when you're utterly in love with them. It's when you realize, my heart wants to thrill the heart of my beloved. And then everything you're doing is so that they will know how much you love them and how much your heart has been bound to their heart. And it's not just in romance. When, when you love a coach, you want to give your best for that coach. When you love your commander, you say, well, your mission is my mission. Your will is my, my will. Whatever it costs for me to be effective, I'm willing to pay it. The motive here is love. It's not duty. It's love. And think through this with me about His call on your life. He's not calling you to be kind of in and then out and in and out. He's calling you to say, you're my commander. You're my captain. You're the one I follow. Where you go, I go. What you want me to do, I'll pay that price. But then he says, he says, the discipline of an athlete. And he says, it's such an interesting, he says, no one gets crowned if they break the rules. And you might say, well, you know, in our day, people try to break the rules to get the crown. But they always get caught. And when they get caught, it's far worse than if they had gotten caught during the, the competition. I mean, when you look at Lance Armstrong, you don't think champion. You know, when you think about the Houston Astros from now on, you're going to think a whole lot of things, but not champion. When you look at those guys who hit those home runs and beat Babe Ruth, you go, steroids. <laughs> right? And you don't feel the same way. If an Olympic champion has found out later that they cheated, everybody feels disgraced by it. The second person isn't really the winner. This person has destroyed the race. Do you understand what he's saying here is you have to look at this like an Olympic athlete and say, the crown is what I'm going for. Nothing less. And he's, he's basically saying, you're deciding what you say no to so as to not be disqualified. Other people might be able to say yes to this or yes to that. 
But you know your crown means I've got to say no to this. And the only one who can do that is you. See, in a, in a way, you don't get the crown if God makes you. You don't get the crown if all you are is afraid of punishment. It's only when you start saying, I want the crown. I want to do my best. I want to reveal what Jesus means to me by the way I live. Are you hearing me? See, every one of these crowns that Paul talks about, they basically represent a test that reveals, am I really in or am I out? And when you're in, what, why he says it's an athlete is not just that there's this kind of reward at the end. It's really, it's your decision. I want to be what God has for me. I want to avail myself of his resources. Can I tell you, on both of these, I've had friends over the years who had wonderful encounters with Jesus. And they had awesome experiences with Jesus. But at some point, they put, the, they put aside being athletes. They put aside being soldiers. And they said, all I want is a big house. All I want is the perfect job. All I want is safety and security. And then they were amazed that God didn't keep them safe. And didn't keep them secure in their plans. And sometimes they lost all faith and all trust in God and stopped praying because he wouldn't keep their plans safe. They wouldn't say no to themselves, but they thought God would never say no to them. Paul's not fooling around here, folks. There comes a point where you have to make a decision. Will I say no to myself? and say yes to my commander? Will I finish my assignment, or will I whine and look for relief because it's too hard? Well, part of that is, again, he's talking about the diligence of a farmer. Look, every spiritual growth in the New Testament is an organic growth. Everything is agricultural, not microwavable. Nothing is instant. Nothing is fast. Everything is developed, and it's developed first by you have to be able to break up the hard ground. For some reason, you are here today, but you're also in this area because God wants you to be the diligent farmers. He hasn't put you here by mistake. He has brought you here by assignment. He has believed that you are the group of people who can take the rocks out of the soil, make the ground fertile, plant the seed of His Word, wait on the harvest, even water it with your own tears, and then see the harvest that He has planned for us. You're the ones He's, he's invited into this. I don't know why He chose us. I don't know why He brought us all together in this time. And, I, and I'm sure that some of you can leave and go to Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia. Or any, but the problem is you'll run into New Yorkers there too. <laughs> and if you run away from here, the assignment will still be the same. And if you say to me, but my family's just too hardened, then ask for prayers that break the ground. If you say to me, my workplace is just too secular, then ask for strategic prayers that bust up the ground. 
It isn't that the ground's bad, it's that the farmer's not diligent. I see I'm about to run out of time. I actually ran out two minutes ago. So I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. So here's what, here's what Paul says when he talks about the Word of God, talking about the Bible, talking about the truth of God being in the heart. He says, look, think this over. In other words, Paul can't make Timothy decide to be a soldier for Christ. He can't make Timothy be an athlete for Christ. He can't make Timothy be a farmer for Jesus. He says, think it over. But then he says this, he says, but as you commit to this, the Lord will grant you understanding and you'll begin to make sense of everything when you're all in for Jesus and you're letting his word and his truth guard your heart. One writer said it this way, the scriptures have the explanation for the pressures you're going through. They are the analysis of the psychological difficulties that you and others around you may be experiencing. They offer the only practical solution to the problems you are facing. This is what you see as you think through the scriptures. You see yourself differently. You learn to look at others differently. You see forces and powers at work that secular minds do not understand. You look at life differently and the glorious thing is you see how it fits. Here is the answer. For the first time, perhaps, you start to live realistically. That is the first encouragement. The puzzles and the mysteries of life that baffle so many come to at least partial answers in the Christian grasp of what God is doing today. So the fourth and the mo probably the most important of all the truths is remember Jesus. And you see, what he says here is he doesn't just say, Remember how Jesus died for your sins and have gratitude. No, he says, remember Jesus who is risen. Do you understand what he's saying here? He's explaining how you go through the most difficult circumstances by fixing your eyes that Jesus looked like he was bound on the cross, but Jesus actually had the cross in his grasp. It looked like Jesus was bound by death, but Jesus intentionally walked into death walked through death and blew a back door out the side of death. And he's inviting you to walk that walk with him. And the way you do it is though you may feel bound at times, the word of God is not bound. That just as Jesus was not bound by death, the Word of God is not bound by anything, and the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that guards your heart. So here he says is a trustworthy saying. It's a hymn that they sang. If you die with Him, you will live with Him. If you endure with Him, you will reign with Him. If you deny Him, he will deny you. Even if you are faithless, He will still be faithful because He can't deny Himself. Look, the older I get, the more I realize that endurance is probably one of the most important characteristics of any follower of Jesus. Because the tests and the trials of life reveal what I really trust in. It reveals my dependence and it reveals my responsiveness. 
It isn't that it gains me a reward. It keeps me in that place of reigning with Him. In that place of walking through death instead of being overcome by death. But I like this part. Paul knows we all go through faithlessness. I remember one time when I said, okay, this is too hard, God. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to live for you anymore. I'm going to do my own thing. And so I, I took some weeks and just started doing my own thing. And, and, and I'm slow, but I started to notice something. I'd be going to do something wrong and going, oh, God, please don't let me get caught. I'd be going for something and I'd say, oh, God, please help me get this. And I'm slow, I'm saying, but as I heard myself doing that, I said, I'm even praying to him when I'm in rebellion. I might as well be all in because I can't live without him even when I'm saying I'm living without him. And what I realized is even when I'm faithless, he is faithful. He would not leave me even when I thought I had left him. He would not forsake me even when I felt like I wanted to forsake Him. This is the beauty of our God. It is, not, it is not our earning. It is not our deserving. But it is our enduring. Will you stand with me? If you're the weakest person in here, today can be a different day for you. All you need is hunger. All you have to say is you're thirsty. One of the things I've realized over the years is that I have dreams that are bigger than I can accomplish. But I know they're dreams that he's given to me. So I know I have nothing that can accomplish those dreams, but I know where I have access to all the resources. And every step of the way where I've yielded to him and I've given him all that I am and all that I've got, the grace has never, ever let me down. He can do more than you could ask, think, or imagine. But it has to start with you saying, Lord, I receive your grace. So would you say this with me? Lord, I acknowledge my weakness. And I receive the grace that is in Jesus Christ. I choose to be all in. A soldier, an athlete, a farmer that pleases you. As you leave today, would you just hear these words? I really never got into the what would Jesus do movement. Because I didn't think it was the right question. I think the right question is, what will please you, Jesus? How can I live a life? How can I use my talents? How can I step into this assignment and please you? Because when you say that, you know that you can't do it in your own strength. You've got to rely on Him. Because if you're going to please Him, you're going to have to receive from Him. I have nothing. I've never saved anybody. I've never healed anybody. I've never delivered anybody. But I have Him and through Him in me, I've seen salvations, deliverances, healings, even resurrections from the dead. 
Because with God, nothing is impossible. And apart from Him, I can do nothing. Would you leave today with a commitment to dependent responsiveness? I will depend on you and I will respond to you. We seal what you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.